0: Good morning church. If you're new, welcome. If you were forced to come because you owe mom a favor, welcome. We are glad you're here. There are donuts to make up for anything that you have to endure in this next 30-ish minutes or so. So super glad you're here. For those watching online, glad you guys are here with us. We have been in the book of Jonah And this is the one section that I'm like, oh, I'm a little worried. But then I'm like, no, it's God's word. I shouldn't be worried. I'm just going to preach it and let it do what it's supposed to do. But before I do that, I want to go to a different place in the Bible. In the book of Numbers 21, uh, verses 4 through 9, we have this really interesting story. And I love going through the Bible and seeing all the stories and how they're all connected to different parts of God's word. And what was happening in the book of Numbers chapter 21 is that the Israelites were supposed to go and take the land that God had promised them, okay? So they say, hey, I'm going to give you this land. You're going to go into this land. And they sent some spies out to go check it out. And they're like, they're really tall. That was their biggest fear. They're tall and we're not. And so they come back like, we shouldn't do it. And God's like, no, you're not trusting me. You're not believing me for the promise that I have for you. That's the whole point. Yes, they are tall, but I'm bigger than them. I'm your God. And so because of that, they had to endure this punishment to wander the desert for 40 years. And all during that time, God provided for them. God cared for them. He gave them food. He gave them water. He made it little things like your sandals won't wear out. Just little stuff like that. Your clothes will last. You'll be able to endure this until that generation all dies off. And then the next generation will inherit the land that I promised them. Well, during that time, what we see is that they started to do what they do really good, which is what we do really good, which is grumble. And they start to complain, and they start to complain to God about, "God, this is your fault, even though it was their sin, even though it was their distrust that got them in the situation, they're blaming God. And like well I, and they start blaming Moses. Well, we don't like Moses. We want to go back to slavery where we were, and God's like, "No, that's not going to work this way." And so God does this really interesting thing where he decides like you're gonna be judged for your disbelief, you're gonna be judged for your grumbling, you're gonna be judged for your sin. And he sends all of these snakes into the Israelite camp. And they are poisonous snakes, they're not like nice snakes there's no such thing as a nice snake. They're all bad and they start biting people and people are dying and people are getting sick and it's going really bad. And then God tells Moses, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a bronze serpent. And then I want you to put that on a stick. And I want you to raise that up into the middle of the camp. And you're like, that is the weirdest thing. Why are we even talking about this? Because here's what was going to happen. As the Israelites looked to that serpent, as they looked to the bronze serpent, if they looked, they would be healed and they would live. And God does this thing where they have to actually... They have to understand that sin is complex and sin leads to complex problems. Can we just agree on that? Like sin gets really messy and it bleeds into everything and it gets really complex, but God understands that even more than we do. And so God then provides simple solutions four sins and how they work. Now it may not be simple how we got there, but how we interact with them is very simple because the idea was is if they looked at the serpent and believed in faith, then they would be healed and they would have life. And you're like, I thought we were in the book of Jonah. But this is where we find ourselves with Jonah as we start to look at the complexity of Jonah's sin and where he's going and what a mess he's made of everything that we're going to realize that God is going to provide a very simplistic way for him to have salvation for him not to die so we see that as Jonah deals with his consequences of his sins we're going to see the character of God and how God provides healing and how he saves the people that call out to him. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Jonah chapter one, verse 17. We're gonna make our way into chapter two all the way to verse 10. If you're new and don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back. We'd love for you to grab one as a free gift so you can see and hear and understand God's word. If you wanna use your device, if you wanna follow along, you can even look at the screen and we can go from there. It says this starting in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look Again, look look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars close upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hopes and steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's go ahead and pray before we jump in. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this passage. As I've wrestled through it this week, you've just shown me a lot of things that I hadn't seen before. Lord, I ask that as we press into the idea of salvation, where it comes from, how it's offered, and how we achieve that salvation, Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to hear the truth of what you would have for us. Lord Jesus, I ask that if there are things that I have written down that are going to be a distraction to the gospel and who you are, that you would take those away. If there's things that are going to put up walls that will keep people from understanding truth, Lord, take them from my mind, my mouth, anywhere. And if there's something you want me to say, Lord, give me the courage to trust and to speak openly about what you would have me say. I love you. I love these people. I thank you for this church. pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. Amen. So. Last week, we see that Jonah was thrown over the side of the boat, and we talked about some of the different ideas that came from that. Some would say, oh, it's because he was trying to keep running from God, to be disobedient from preaching the message of repentance to his enemies. Or maybe you landed kind of where I was at last week, the idea that he he understood he was running from God, and that that was wrong, and he shouldn't have done that, and he repented from that, and he took the blame for that event. Regardless of where you fall in that area, it doesn't really matter because he's in a bad spot now. He's not in a, in a place where he's really excited. He is sinking into the deep of the ocean and certain death awaits him. He is going to drown very soon. But we see that God is not done with Jonah. He's not done with exposing his life. As we talked about last week, he's not done with the Peeling back the layers of the sin onion in his life. He's going to keep pulling those back so Jonah can learn who this God is that he's actually running away from. That he would understand the great love that God has for his people, for him, and ultimately for the rest of the world. So God appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. And maybe up to this point, you're like, I'm on board with this. I, I, I was tracking, I'm believing what you're saying, but I'm out. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm the fish thing, I'm out. I'm not, I thought it was a whale. You're not even telling me it's a whale, it's a fish, apparently. And you're like, this is crazy. This story just went from like, okay, to weird, to crazy, to impossible. And I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. It is impossible unless an all-powerful God is behind it. See, we're, we're, this is not a book about a guy. This is a book about a God. A God who, when he decided he was going to create everything, spoke everything into existence. A God that is so powerful that he decides who lives, who dies, what holds together, that holds the atoms of our very fiber together, who we are, that's who he is. He's like, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want life, I don't want life. He did, that's who he is. We're talking about a being that's nothing like us. And yet we try to impose our ideas on what he can and can't do based on our limited information and knowledge, right? And so it does seem impossible. When I mentioned this study, when we first started, I'm like, if, you, if this is the first time you're objecting to something crazy in the Bible, you really haven't been reading it very closely. There's a lot of bizarre, crazy things that are happening up until this point. Like people coming back to life, people making rivers stop, people splitting water, chariots of fire, picking dudes up, a guy who walks on water. And the weirdest one is a loving God who forgives sin. Like if if this is where you have your first objection, you've missed everything. And I would say this, if you're like, it's just impossible, it's just impossible, I would pose this to you you might be worshiping a weak God. And maybe what you need is an all-powerful God that you can worship. As a matter of fact, in uh, Matthew 19, we see that that's exactly what Jesus says. Matthew 19, 26, he's talking to these guys about how to get into the, the kingdom of God, and he's talking about a camel and an eye and a needle and rich people, and we'll talk about that some other day, but he says this, But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God can do what he decides when he decides. And what happens in this next section that we move into is maybe, you, maybe your Bible, as you're looking at it, you see how it's written and there's a different way that the text is written in your Bible. Like It just looks different. It's not written the same way. And there's a reason why. Because we've moved into a poetic form in this story. So this, everything up to this has been telling the story and the history of what's going on, it's, it's laying it out, but then it shifts to poetry. And so Jonah's going to use his prayer as poetry as he communicates to God in this section. And verses three through six are going to be how Jonah cries out for help. And verses six through 10 are going to be how God answers that. Now, as I was studying this week, there was something that caught me that I hadn't seen before. And I was listening to a guy that I know, and he he kind of pointed this out. I'm like, oh, I hadn't seen that. Because in verse 17, we get the whole, you know, and then the Lord appointed a fish to come and swallow him and he was in the belly for three days and three nights. I'm like, yeah, we all know that. It's verse 1 in chapter 2, the first word that caught me. Then, after three days, in the belly of a fish, then he decides to pray. You like that? What is going on? Like, you have to ask the question, why did he wait so long to pray to God? Here's why I believe. I believe because there was just still a tremendous amount of stubbornness in the heart of Jonah. That there was a pride in his heart. And we're going to see more of this as it plays out in the following weeks. And, and, I, and I'd say, I think we're like this too at times, aren't we? We are so stubborn. We, like, we'll admit, like, Okay, well, I should not have done that. And then we use this word that just nullifies everything. It's called, but. (laughs) But he deserved it. But they deserved it. Like, you hit your brother. Yeah, but. It doesn't matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter what that is. When you say, but, you're making an excuse for it. And even though we're trying to admit that we're wrong, there's something deep down inside of us that doesn't want to admit that we're wrong. And I think what we see with Jonah is the very same thing. He's like, I know that this was wrong. I know I shouldn't have done it, but there's a really good reason, Lord. Like, it it makes sense, right? It all, like, you'll, you'll get it. You'll catch up with me, God, when you figure out what I know. That's exactly what we do. And we try to spin our evil actions as actions of good all the time. Yet in all of this, we see that he is sinking deeper and deeper in the water because of his choices. He's about to die because of his choices. And if you're looking at it from a literary standpoint, as he's moving deeper and deeper, it's moving farther and farther away from God. It's moving deeper into death, deeper into separation, and it's starting to make a little bit of sense. See, God continues his pursuit of Jonah. God doesn't quit on his people. He didn't stop chasing after them. He continually chases after them. He wants Jonah to see God for who he really is. That he is a God of mercy. And that he has so much mercy that he sent a giant fish to save him. Because God loves his people. No matter where they are. No matter what they're going through. And if you start to think about this, we're always looking for the gospel everywhere when we read God's word. If you're not looking for the gospel, you're not reading the Bible properly. We should be looking for the gospel continually. It's one gospel story. And what we see is in this moment, the vessel of salvation is going to be this fish that he has to literally be inside of a fish for salvation to take place. Jonah needed to hide his life in something for salvation. that's not like anything that we may understand or know as Christians? We need to hide our life in someone for salvation. In the person of Jesus Christ. That is the salvation. He is telling us the story of what Jesus is ultimately going to do. This is who he is. And if you look at what happens, we see that Jonah's prayer is a recount of what's going on in his life. In, the, in Jonah's weakest moment. We see in this situation, what does he do? He's only got one option. He can't do anything. He calls out to the Lord. Oddly enough, if you look at that uh, in verse 2 where it says that he called out to the Lord, do you know where else that's used? Well, it's used in chapter 1, verse 14. When the sailors called out to the Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh. That's what they're doing. So he's doing the very same thing that the sailors doing. And I love that you've got these two opposing, different kind of people—pagans who know nothing about God and a dude who totally knows God—and yet they both need to call out to God because they need to be saved. That is what's happening. And out of his distress, he calls out. See, in his distress, God hears Jonah, and and. That should bring us comfort that when we are in distress, that when we are at our end of our rope, at our wits end, we don't know what to do anymore, that we call out and there is a God who listens, who hears, and who answers. Jonah has shown nothing but rebellion and disregard for God and his will and his ways up until this point. Has he done anything that has earned God's grace or mercy? The answer is no, because then it wouldn't be grace or mercy. That's the whole idea. There's nothing that he's done. But God regards Jonah as one that he wants to engage and to teach the truth of who he is. So he will understand the God that he says he worships. So he will worship appropriately. That's what's going on. And as we move into this poetic account, we're going to see that he starts talking about being cast in the sea by the Lord. You're like, but the sailors did it. God worked through the sailors to do that. That's what he's acknowledging in that moment, that God is a sovereign one who's in control of all things. And that he's sinking deeper and deeper and further and further away from God. And what he's feeling, what he's sensing, what he's engaging in that moment is that he's seeing that God's favor was far from him. As the waves came over and the billows crashed over and he went down and the seaweeds wrapped around the, like, he's like, I'm just so out of God's favor. I'm so far away from God right now. And it uses a term and a word that maybe you're not familiar with. It's Sheol, And you're like, well, what is that? It's the realm of the dead. And so as it talks about this, he was saying that I'm, I'm near death. I was getting closer to where the dead are, to where the dead are, are trapped and they're stuck. And they said, the like, why are the bars? The bars are where they would keep the dead. That's what he's talking about. He says, that's where I feel like I'm at. It's, it's actually similar to, it, to another poem that we get from a guy named David. If you go to Psalm 30. 2 through 3, David's going to write this psalm and he's going to write in a poetic way. He's going to actually use a very similar picture that he felt that he experienced in that moment that is very similar to what Jonah said. He says, oh Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, very similar to Jonah calling to God for help, and you have healed me. Oh Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. And we see that David is using that same idea that in his distress, in his darkest moments where he feels far from God, he calls out to God and there's hope and there's salvation for him. Jonah thinks about being far from God. He thinks about the temple. He thinks about where people would go to worship God. That's the idea of the temple, that God was in the Holy of Holies. It's where relationship and restoration took place with God for the people of Israel. It's like, will I have that again? Is that something I'm going to possess? Now, I do want to throw this out. I like to give you different views and opinions all the time. I think it's actually healthy for us to know that there's different views on different things that aren't salvific in nature. I didn't make that word up. That's an actual word. But there are these some that say that potentially it feels like Jonah died and then came back to life later. And there's some people that I know that that are like, I think that that's what it might be. And, And I want to talk a little bit about that. And I'll just tell you where I land and you can make your own decision. I think you can see that there are parts that look very similar, especially as Jesus talked about that. And he alluded to that as well, that that is something that he would say. But what the problem is, it doesn't specifically say that at times, and it's hard to see that. So sometimes you have to infer some things, or maybe kind of go, well, it could be this. And so you could get there. I don't think that it's impossible to get there. But as I read through it, as I studied it this week, I said, okay, what are we seeing? Things like this. The water was trying to take his life. It uses the word yet, yet. You brought my life from the pit where my life was fainting away to the point of almost to death. But you may say, well, but, but Jesus talked about it. So he used the analogy, right? You, you shared the verse, Simon. It was in, in that section. It doesn't have to be an exact event for event detail, right? That's not what it was. But he's showing that there is salvation that is hidden within the Lord. when we are in that vessel of salvation, that there is hope. So I would say that even as I read more through the story, and I think if we ever stop here, you could make that more of an argument. But as I go deeper into the story, I think you see more and more about his heart. I think that the psalm, as I read through the psalm this week from David, that it wasn't uncommon for that kind of writing and that kind of idea to be communicated about Sheol as you look at it like, okay, so even David, we know that David didn't die yet. He spoke in the same way that that shows that there may not be a... So I don't fall in that camp. I'll just throw my cards on the table. And I'm okay with that. And you may hold to that maybe he did die. and Maybe that makes a better picture of, you know, Jesus and his death. And I'm fine with that too. But I would say this. The response from God to save him is clear. Can we just sit on that? That God heard him call out to him. He remembered the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of God, and that's what he pressed into in that moment. And And I'll just keep saying it. The thing that we need to understand that's most important is that Jonah did not earn or deserve God's grace or mercy. By the way, this is a mega theme in the Bible that goes through the entire Bible, that God continues to show his grace, his mercy to people in the Bible that do not deserve it. That's just a mega theme that you'll see over and over and over again, that we don't earn it, we don't deserve it, that we deserve his wrath, but yet God, in his loving grace and mercy, extends his salvation to who he wants. See, God is trying to show that to Jonah the sailors didn't earn it, deserve it. You don't earn it or deserve it. And we'll see as we get into Nineveh next week that they don't earn it or deserve it. And here's the other thing. We don't get to choose who gets it. Like, you might be like, well, I don't think that, that person, like they, they, were, they were too evil. They were too bad. Not your choice. Not your decision. That is God's sovereign choice of who he is going to save and what that looks like. And if you look at his prayer and you start to break it down, you notice he's not repenting. It's not a prayer of repentance like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. Like, I should have a heart like you. I should love those sinners. I should have loved the sailors. I should be loving Nineveh. I should be taking your message of hope to all the world. I should see myself as broken and evil and wicked just as much as they are. That is not his prayer. Actually, it's a prayer of thanksgiving. He is thankful that God saved him. He's not thankful for the sailors at all. He's not even getting close to being thankful that God would save the Ninevites. He's, he hasn't rejected his false belief system at this point of how salvation works and who God is and who he saves. He's still focused on himself. It's about Jonah. It's about him, his people, his salvation, his relationship with God. And if you start to unpack verse 8, and this is when I just kind of like, no, he isn't really saying this. And then I read it more. I'm like, I think he's saying this. Verse 8 is horrible because this is what he says. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. You're like, well, that sounds really nice. Like, what's the problem? It's almost as if Jonah is taking a jab at the sailors and the Ninevites because the Ninevites worship false gods and false idols, right? The sailors, we saw very clearly, little G, go pray to your God, pray to your gods, pray to any God that you can, and they weren't answering. It's like he's trying to remind God, like, uh, and just in case you forgot, God, about the covenant and how it works and your love, uh, these guys are sinners and they worship idols, and so that steadfast covenant love should not be for them. But I know, you get that. I just, I just want to make sure I'm just saying it out loud so I can hear it. Like, do you see the wickedness and evil in his heart? He's, he's really, he's knocking them down. These people should not be a part of the covenant. They don't deserve to be a part of the covenant. They have no reason to be a part of the covenant love that you have for Israel. And at the end of this section, Jonah says this profound truth that I don't even think that he understands. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is the the absolute center of this story. It is what everything in this story revolves around that salvation belongs to the Lord, that God is going to save who he chooses to save. And so you're like, well, what is he saying then? Who is he talking about when he's talking about salvation belongs to the Lord? The sailors? The Ninevites? Maybe the people of Israel, his people? Or is he talking about himself? Well, I've read the whole story. And as I've read it, I'm going to go ahead and go on a limb here and say, he's talking about himself. He's talking about him, that there's salvation that belongs to him. But here's the crazy part. He actually is right, that salvation does belong to the Lord. And then, as he says that, God commands the fish to vomit out Jonah onto dry land. He has been saved and delivered from death by God's fishy tomb. It's funny how God is always trying to show us that His ways are better than our ways. He's always showing us that we should obey Him, that His ways are so much better than anything we can imagine. And at this point, there's a number of things that have happened, and there's a number of things that have actually listened to the voice of God. And let's think about it, the storm obeys God. The storm gets crazy, it gets crazier, and then the storm stops, so God is telling the sea what to do, and, well, it listens. Then we see that he speaks, and the sailors obey the voice of the Lord. They listen to God. So the sailors obey. They throw Jonah into the water. We then see that a fish obeys the voice of God, not once, twice. Twice the fish obeys. I'm going to swallow you. I'm going to throw you up. Okay, God. Here's the question. Will Jonah obey the voice of God? We're going to see in the weeks that follow what's going to happen. We're going to wonder, like, does he? And if he does, what is the condition and attitude of his heart in that? Is it joyful obedience? Is it loving obedience? Or is it begrudging obedience? Because there's a difference. If you've ever had children, and you ask them to fine, do it. Oh, thank you, child. Your love and affection means so much to me when you speak. Not my kids, somebody else's kids. Not my kids. They just like that every time. It's like there's a difference in begrudging obedience and joyful submission. There really is. Now you may be wondering, like. Simon, what do we do with this crazy prayer? How does this even like land in my life at all? Maybe last week you walked out and you're like, you know, you, I walked out last week and I'm like, man, um, heard the message, thanks. Yeah, I'm running from God, thanks. But then you didn't tell me what to do. And I'll, and I'll say this. There are times when I hold back the application a little bit. And part of it's because the story is unfolding before our eyes, right? And so if you give too much, you're kind of like, okay, what's the big takeaway? And so at times it's okay to just acknowledge at one point that, hey, just admitting that you're running from God is a great step in understanding where you are in your relationship with God. Understanding that you're running from God means you're not running towards God means that something's got to change. It means that there's some kind of conviction going on in your life, and it's okay to sit in that at times and to think through it. It's okay to leave here and read the rest of the story. You can do that. I'm not going to be like, oh, how dare you read the Bible? Only I read you the... now, that's not how we do it here. Read the Bible. You can read and you can like start to work through that in your heart and where you are and ask God, engage me. Help me see what I need to do, help me see where I need to change. Well, last week, you gotta start asking the question like, okay, well, what did Jonah do? Right now, what did he do? He was in distress and he called out to the Lord. Let me tell you, I don't know where everyone is in this room, but I know that life is complex. I know that sin is complex. I know a lot of us are going through a lot of different things. And a lot of us, as I talk with people more and more, we smile a lot, but we're crying on the inside and we're screaming for help all the time. I don't know where you are in your relationships, with your health, with your job, with your finances, with your kids, with with, with whatever, I don't know where you are. And at times we can feel like we are drowning like Jonah, that we are alone, that we're far from God. And it can seem like there's no way out and you feel like you need something. I, I share this analogy way too much, but it's just who I am and I'm gonna share it. I spent a lot of time in the hot tub. I'm not, I was born in the 70s, I'm not from the 70s, but I was born in the 70s, so I spent a lot of time in a hot tub and I sit outside, and I like to pray over these sermons. I was praying for the staff, I was praying for the sermon, I'm praying for my family, and I'm sitting out there, and where we were last night, clouds kind of kept rolling in. It was just what it was, it was a weird night. And so there was a lot of wind, and the clouds were moving around. But there was a moon out, I don't know if you knew that, there was a moon out last night. And I'm looking at the moon, and I'm seeing it, and then the clouds are pushing across the sky, and at times, the moon starts disappearing. It's amazing, the moon disappeared. it didn't. It was just hidden by the clouds, right? The clouds would come and then something would happen where there were these pockets in the clouds and occasionally the moon would poke back out and I'd see it clear as day and it was bright. At times in our life, the situations we're going through, the distress and the struggles feel like the clouds that roll in and it feels like it covers up that God is present and that God is there, like the moon is. And every time, I was, I was thinking about this last night, and every time a pocket would come out, like the moon would just start to get, it just get brighter and brighter and brighter, Then get brighter and kind of go away, that God at times shows himself in these moments to make himself evident that he is real, that he is there, because the reality is this, no matter how many clouds there are, the moon hasn't gone away. It's not disappeared, it didn't vanish. I want you to know that there is hope in your circumstances, that God is there, that God hears, that God sees your distress, and he is saying, call out to me. And if I can go back to my first intro story to try to like tie this in, like I still don't get the whole serpent thing. Let 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 me land that there. We just saw Jonah was a man who was dying he did not deserve God's grace. And in Numbers 21, we saw a people that were rebellious, that didn't trust God, that were blaming God for their own sins. And yet God decided to show them grace and mercy. As a matter of fact, and I keep going back to the book of John, I think it might secretly becoming one of my favorite books. I'm constantly quoting John. And in John 3, 14, it says this. These are the words of Jesus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Like, sometimes God's like, you're so dense, I'm going to really explain what's happening so you'll understand. He is saying this, that just like that serpent brought healing and life and salvation to those that were bit by the snake, that representing sin and death, that Jesus, the son of man, as he referred himself, will be lifted up as well in the same manner on a stick as well. And that he was going to die. And that for those that look to him for salvation, for those to look for him and trust in his life, they would be saved they would not die. They would be healed, and they would have eternal life. That's what he's saying. This is, this is what starts playing out as we look at our life and where we are. When we are in these situations, we're running from God with our hard hearts and our lack of love for others, are thinking that our righteousness will do something in our own ability. We need to understand, just like the sailors, they had to call out just like Jonah, he had to call out, and just like us, because of sin in this world that is leading us to death, that is separating us from God, that feels like we're getting farther and farther away, that if we call out to God for salvation through his Son Jesus Christ, we will have life and we will be saved. That is the gospel message. Maybe. Maybe you just don't see it, but I'm telling you, if you were running from God, if you felt like Jonah did, you are feeling the weight of sin and its effects in your life. And there is a God that is screaming at you how much he loves you and cares for you, that he loves you so much that he sent his son to die in your place. That's how much he loves you. He sacrificed his son so you could be his son and daughter. And he is saying that you... If you turn to Jesus, what you are saying is humbly. I can't do it. I don't have the ability. It's the same thing that the Israelites had to do with the bronze serpent. They had to admit that they couldn't and that God could. So you lay down humbly your anger, your frustration, your lust, your jealousy, your envy, your pain, your sorrow. Your loss, your brokenness at the foot of the cross. Knowing that Jesus died for all of this. You don't have to carry that weight. You don't have to be the one that carries it. Jesus carries it. He died on the cross for you. He made it so you could walk in newness the way you were meant to walk. And as we look at the cross, we're saying, I can't, and he did, and so I can be free. And maybe those list of things that I've talked about, you feel like you're just stuck. The Bible would use the words slavery and chains to describe that feeling that you're feeling. Jesus would say that he has freed you from that. You're no longer a slave to it, doesn't have control. You're like, well, Simon, I I need to, what do I need to do, though? You need to put it at the foot of the cross and know that Jesus did it. You can let go of that pain. You can let go of that hurt. You don't have to hold it. Think about this. If when Jonah called out to the Lord, God saved him. If when the sailors call out to the Lord, God save them. Are you seeing a pattern? If we call out to the Lord, we can be saved. The question is, what do you need to call out to the Lord for? What do you need to repent of? What do you need to lay down? And it is the simplicity of the gospel of laying down your burdens at the foot of the cross and knowing that Jesus has taken those. Let's go ahead and pray. lord jesus i thank you for this section of scripture i'm sure there's many unanswered questions i'm sure there's many things that we would want to explore more and that's great and i think we should but i ask that we would focus on the larger idea that you are a god that saves all you save the religious you save the pagan you save us That we don't earn or deserve your mercy. That all we are called to do is look to your son Jesus for our salvation. The same way that the Israelites looked at the bronze serpent. The same way that Jonah cried out. The same way that the sailor cries out. Lord, that we understand that you are our vessel of salvation. And as we place ourselves in you, we will be saved from death. We'll be saved from the land of the dead. That we will not have to worry about that. That we will be delivered through your death, Jesus. Let us cling to you deeply. Let us love you fully. I pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen.